Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. This week, the goal is to finish the three-part podcast series about card drafting as a game mechanic. I am super excited about today's episode, but my only concern is how to complete the episode in under two hours. The script has already 25 pages for today's show alone. The topic of card drafting is just so broad and interesting that I could easily spend another two or three episodes on it. But no worries, I'm going to finish today, I promise. In the first episode, we looked a little bit on what makes drafting fun, what kind of strategies can be used during a draft, and what are the challenges for us as designers to um, create these kind of games. And in the second part, um, I explained a framework of questions which are used to analyze four different card drafting games. Um, and the games I went through last week were Sushi Go, Seven Wonders, Seven Wonders Duel, and Illusium. And what all of these games have in common is that for them, drafting is the main part of the game. Today, we will also look at some games in which drafting is only the distribution mechanic um, before or in between the actual game. Last week, we described the games in a lot of detail. And this week, I will try to go over the rules a bit quicker and focus more on what makes these games special and what we can learn from them. Because I want to cover a lot more games than last week. If you didn't listen to episode 1 and 2 of this series, I highly recommend to listen to them first because they build up on each other to some degree. Okay, but now let's start and analyze some spicy drafting games. We are going to start with Blood Rage. Blood Rage is uh, designed by Eric Lang and is a game about Vikings, Ragnarok and the end of the world. It is a battle game that is very much about um, attacking other players. It has a game board with different regions and different provinces and these provinces are destroyed during the course of the game. But before the land falls to Ragnarok you have to lead your Vikings to battle to earn your spot in Valhalla. Uh, the goal is to gain the most glory and this can be achieved through battles, pillaging uh, and questing by using your leader and your warriors. Blood Rage comes with three decks of cards, each representing the gifts of the gods that you gain for a different age. For all the three ages, there is a draft at the beginning of the round. The cards you are drafting make you better in combat by giving you upgrades for your different units or by giving you modifiers that you can use during a battle. Um, there's a lot of variety in the cards. And each player receives eight cards from the stack of cards for the respective age and then picks one card and give the rest to the next player. Classic drafting. But compared to the games we talked about last week, you do not do something with the card you drafted immediately. First, the entire round is drafted and all of the picks um, remain secret before the actual game is played. From the eight cards, only six are drafted. The last two are discarded. Um, you may ask yourself, why does the game have different phases? Um, couldn't you just have a large draft in the beginning and then play the entire game? Well, 
The reason is easy. During the round, the board state changes and you can foresee upcoming conflicts. That means you have a lot of new information to process and to take into account every round that will influence your own tactic and also inform you with uh, which player you will probably be in conflict in the next round. So your decisions in the draft can be heavily impacted by the knowledge from the board state. Sometimes you really don't want to give a specific card to the next player because you will meet him in battle during the next phase. That leaves you with interesting choices and creates this typical tension I love so much in a draft. Maybe you will prioritize a hate pick um, if you know that he will face your neighbor in the next round. One thing I want to mention here is that has absolutely nothing to do with drafting is that the game has a great comeback mechanic. During a conflict, both players can play combat modifier cards from their hand. But only the winning player has to discard the battle modifier card afterwards. The other player keeps it and can use it again later in the game. And the second thing I like is that the death is meaning something in the Blood Rage. If your units die, they go to Valhalla. This is glorious and that means that their death gives you victory points. I think those are great examples that both help to not give the winning player too much of an advantage. And they are also very thematic for the game, at least the part with Valhalla. So if I apply the framework that I created last week, we can see that the game components that are drafted are cards as usual and they represent the god's gifts um, for upgrades, quests and battle modifier cards. The pool is hidden and the opponent choices are also hidden. The pool size is um, 24 cards per player, e um, that means 8 cards per round uh, and you play 3 rounds. And the pool compilation is a subset and there are some player count specific cards that you have to uh, remove from the set. From the eight cards in your pool, only six cards will be drafted. The last two will be discarded. And you always take one card or one pick per round, except for the two-player variant in which you pick two cards. That brings us to the most important question. What is it that we can learn from the game? For me, there are three things which I think are great in the game and which we can learn from it. The first one is um, that player count specific cards are in the game. Some of the cards have a small number printed on them indicating that they are only used if at least the number of players are participating. And before the game starts you go through each pile and return to the box any cards you find with a number greater than the number of players. If you set up a two-player game for example you have to remove all the three and four numbered cards. This allows you to design cards with a specific player count in mind and if one of these cards would be broken in a lower player count or wouldn't just work from a rules perspective, you can easily remove it um, with this mechanic. The second thing we can learn is a neat little discard mechanic. In Blood Rage you have to discard all but one card at the end of each age leaving you with an interesting decision about what you want to carry over to the next age. This simple rule adds a little bit of long-term strategic planning and also a bit of hidden information that you can carry over to the next round. What I also like about the drafting in Blood Rage is that it is divided into three different phases. If your game is also about conflict, it can make sense to divide the drafting into different rounds because it asks 
your player to take the new bot dates and situations into account in every drafting round. And that is something that I really like because you have to adjust your tactic over and over again. Okay, the next game on the list is Biblios. In Biblios, you are an abbot of a medieval monastery competing with other abbots to amass the greatest library of sacred books. To do so, you need to have both the workers and resources to run a well-functioning scriptorium. And to acquire workers and resources, you use a limited supply of donated gold. And the goal of the game is to score the most victory points. And you win victory points by winning any of the five categories. Um, illuminators, scribes, manuscripts, scrolls and supplies. Players acquire cards in two different ways in the game. The, the first one is um, you acquire cards as gifts and other cards through some kind of auction. Um, in the gift phase, the active player picks a number of cards equal to the number of players plus one of the top of the deck, one at a time. And as each card is picked, the player looks at it and must decide whether to keep it, add it to a face-up row or place it in a separate pile for the later phase of the game um, before picking up the next card. That means in a three-player game, you would pick up four cards one by one from the deck and you would make a decision for each and every card before you take the next one. And you are only allowed to keep one of the four cards for yourself. But remember, you only look at them one at a time. That means there is a push-your-luck element here. The players must keep exactly one card in a turn and must add exactly one card to the separate pile while the other cards are added to the face-up row. So at the end of the player's turn, exactly one card is in his hand, one card is in the auction pile and um, one card per opponent is in the face-up area. And once the player is done, the remaining players then draft cards from the face-up row in clockwise order. That means everyone is getting exactly one card per player turn. And turns will continue like this until the complete deck is empty. The game consists of cards from five different colors representing the five different resources and each has a numeric value from one to four. At the end of the game, players will total the values for each type of card to see if they won this category. In addition to the resources, also gold is in the pool of cards with different values from one to three. This gold is needed for the auction phase of the game. You bid with your gold on every card of the auction pile, which was also constructed during the draft, as you remember. In the auction phase, every card from the um, auction pile is uh, flipped over, um, card by card, and players are bidding on them. Then at the end, the victory points will be counted together. There are also some cards that change the victory points per category, but uh, I do not go into detail here. I think Biblios is a great example of how to integrate drafting as a mechanic with other mechanics. In Biblios you use uh, cards as a drafted component and they represent gold, resources and workers. The pool is to some degree hidden and to some degree revealed. And also the opponent choices are to some degree hidden and to some degree revealed. And what you use um, in the pool is a subset because random cards are removed based on player count 
but the subset that you have created then um, is used completely during the game. So no cards are discarded during the game. However, you have to decide if you want to put those cards um, into your hand or um, want to put it into the middle of the table where everyone has access to of your, from your opponents or if you want to put them into the auction phase. So you pick one card per turn and you also pick one card in each of your opponent's turns. And there is no restriction regarding the picks. But in the auction phase, there's of course money that you need to acquire the cards. The, the number of rounds drafted is until the pile is empty and the game is for two to four players. And synergies in this game really comes from cards that change the value of certain categories victory points and this can influence your strategy during the draft so if you try to win one of the categories but the victory points are reduced in that carry category you might have to um, change your strategy and go for another category so there are a few things we can learn from the game the first one really is how the game implemented this hybrid character of hidden and revealed drafting mechanics. I really love that because you have some clue about what your opponents might go for, but they are also picking some cards uh, hidden, so you never know for sure. The second thing I really like about the game is how they added a push-your-luck element to the draft. You are only allowed to keep one of the four cards, but you have to look at them one at a time. That means some players will be greedy and they have to keep the last one. Um, Others will not push their luck so far and they keep the first one and then they will be mad because they have to give the good cards to the other players or to the auction pile. And I really like that kind of decisions. And the last element of the game which I really like is the decision between picking gold or a card that has an immediate effect. What I mean by that is that you have to make a decision between an immediate reward that you exactly know for sure what it what it does, how it helps your strategy, or by picking gold that is the currency that you need later for the auction phase. And you don't really know what you will get from that gold, but you increase your chances of getting something good. Okay, that's it for Biblios. And now we come to the next game, which is Mundos Novos. And it is probably a stretch to call this a real drafting game. But there is one aspect which I thought could be very interesting for a drafting game as well. Mundus Novos is a card game about harvesting resources in the new world and shipping those goods back home to the old world. For returning these goods you score victory points and the first player reaching 75 points wins the game. Each player gains at least five cards of goods, representing resources like cacao, coffee or indigo. In addition to the resource type, each card comes with a number that is relevant to calculate the victory points you will earn from your hand. And at the end of the round, all the goods in your hand will be shipped to the old world. And the goal is to build the best hand possible, of course. There is some trade happening with the central market and the other players, but I don't want to get into these details now. The game is very much about hand building and you can try to get two different kinds of hand. The first one is um, to go for different numbers. If you have three, four or five differently numbered cards in hand, you will get a number of victory points. 
if you have three, four or five cards that are the same of a kind, you can then buy cards from the developments, which are some cards that are revealed on the table for everyone. And the stronger your hand, the more options you have to pick from them. The interesting choice here is if you want to go for the long-term engine by picking those developments or uh, if you want to go for the victory points and trying to win the game early. Typically you start to build some kind of engine in the beginning but at some point you need to go for the victory points and it's very interesting to find that sweet spot here. Um, but how do you build your hands in the game? In the beginning you get five cards um, or more if you have additional uh, ships which are developments that you have to build first um, and similar to biblios you get to keep some cards from your initial hand and place the other cards open in front of you so everyone can choose the open cards from another player so how many cards everyone is allowed to keep is decided by the trade master so it's not one like in biblios it is uh, different in every round and the trade master decides how many cards everyone has to trade so if you have a hand of five and the trade master um, decides that three cards needs to be traded then everyone keeps two cards um, and everyone then reveals the amount of cards and put them to the table the player who has revealed the higher total becomes the trade master next round But then everyone picks from the cards the other players revealed. So this is a mix of drafting, hand building and tableau building, I would call it. This is also a hybrid implementation because it has some hidden and some revealed elements and you know a little bit about your opponent choices, but you do not know everything and that's quite interesting. And what I, what I really like about that game is that the number of picks that you are allowed to keep is not a fixed value it is flexible and it is a tactical element of the game another aspect of the game that you see quite often in drafting games is the combination of drafting and hand building and it often includes some kind of synergy in which you try to find cards of the same kind or cards of different kinds and this is something that is very typical for the combination of drafting and hand management And I like it, by the way. The next game on the list is Seasons. The game is about a tournament of the 12 seasons between mages who all want to become the Archmage. The game consists of a game board, four different kinds of season dice, a player board and, most importantly, the power cards, which will be drafted. You have to shuffle the power cards and then deal nine cards to each of the players. The goal is to use the power of the dice in combination with the power cards drafted to gain the most prestige possible. The drafting part of the game is quite normal, I would call it. Um, you pick one card and pass the rest to the next player. You do this until each player has chosen nine cards, but then it becomes a little bit more interesting. Then each player looks at his cards and organizes them into three piles of three cards each. The piles represent your libraries for the different phases of the game. The first one is immediately put into your hand and the other two are for the later phases of the game. They are set aside. That means you have to choose the order in which you will collect these cards later in the game, already in the beginning. The game then is played in different seasons. For example, in winter season you roll the blue dice and then draft one dice per player. 
The season dice represents the different resources you get in this turn and in combination with the board determines the actions that you can take. Um, in addition to that, you can then play power cards from your hand um, and you need to pay their cost with the resource you just acquired from the dice roll. The special part of Seasons is really that the entire draft happens at the beginning of the game and you have to come up with a long-term strategy for the entire game. There are some aspects of the game which I really like and the first one is that it has some way to reduce the barrier of entry. Each card has a unique number on the bottom of the card and it is recommended to remove all cards between 31 and 50 from the game if you play for the first time as they are a little bit more complex ones. This is of course to help to decrease the complexity and reduce the barrier of entry for newer players. In order to make the game even easier to learn, the rulebook comes with a pre-constructed set of cards for each player. This means you can play the game completely without a draft for the first time to learn what all the cards do. The second aspect that we can learn from this game is the one big draft in the beginning of the game, but the separation of cards into different phases. This has some advantages it maybe also has some disadvantages but advantage would be that um, it is uh, very time efficient if you only have one draft in the beginning you have to do some long-term strategic planning which can be interesting and it also adds some some form of bluffing to the game because you never know if a player has kept his best cards for the last age and the last thing that we can learn from the game is uh, i think a really smart combination of uh, using dice drafting and card drafting in the same game. The next game on the list is Greed. Um, it's a game I haven't played myself, but I was pointed to by Christian, one of the loyal listeners of the podcast and member of our mastermind group. Um, and he pointed me toward this game because it is his favorite drafting game. He wrote an article about that game on BoardGameGeek and um, I will definitely reference it in the show notes. Um, Creed is a gangster-style drafting game of the late 60s. The game contains 80 cards, of which each player is dealt 12 random cards in the beginning. And from this pool, each player picks one and passes the rest to the next player. And now comes the special part about the game, because once everyone picked up the third card, you have to choose one card from that hand of three to play. From that on, always draft one card to your hand and then immediately choose one of the three cards to play. That means it is possible to draft a card, but save it for a few turns before you play it because you play a card that you haven't had in hand before. Uh, the cards represent uh, thugs, holdings and one-time actions. Each card comes with a special effect and there are tons of combos to discover. The cards generally give you money and the goal of the game is to end up with the most money. Uh, Thug cards are often provide you with um, icons like guns, cars or keys. And then other cards um, have these icons as needs or reference them in a certain way. For example, something like uh, you gain 10,000 uh, bucks for each car symbol you have. From a strategic point of view, it really matters in which order you play your cards and how you set up your display. The cards work very well together, making every game completely different. You want to play your cards in a specific order, 
but you also need to react to what other players are doing because some cards will let you steal money from them or interact with their holdings and thugs. So um, the components that you draft of course are cards and they represent as I mentioned thugs, holdings and actions. The pool is hidden and the opponent choices are hidden as well but um, since most of them are played immediately they are not that hidden in compared to other games. Um, the pool size is 12 cards per player and it is always a subset of the eight card, 80 cards in total. The synergies really come from the icons, at least from what I've seen. You, you sometimes need um, specific cards that you have to discard in order to be able to play cards um, and other cards get just better when you play them in a certain order because they reference other icons, for example. For, or, for example, they double the income in a specific round. There are some things in the game that Christian really likes about the game and I have to agree with him here, even without playing the game. Um, the first one is the instant setup. The game is super easy to set up. You only shuffle the cards and you are good to go. Uh, that is much easier than compared to some other games which you have to remove cards for a specific player count. Um, then you have to make separate piles and stuff like that. None of it in this game. Only shuffle the cards and you're good to go. The second thing we can learn from this game is about card interactions. So that's also different to some of the games we talked about because every card has a unique ability. It's not about collecting doubles, dribbles, uh, quadruples of a card. Um, it is more about using the combos and the interactions between the cards. And there is a very easy and good way of referencing the cards. And because you have these different card types and icons uh, that are relevant for all of your actions. The result is that there are lots of great combos that you can discover. That brings us also to the last point um, that I want to mention, and that is variety. Um, you have 80 cards in total, but since you always only use a subset of the cards, the result is that there is a lot of replayability. Because the, there are nice combos, some of them are a little bit more difficult to achieve, others are easier to achieve, um, and you always have to discover new things. So there's a lot of replayability, even if there are only 80 cards in total. Okay, that brings us to the next game. And the next game is Lost Legends by Mike Elliott, um, which is a drafting game about dungeons and fighting. Each player starts with a board showing their character. They have a mana track and a health track and experience points and victory points and gold. Everything you would expect from a dungeon fighting game. The game is played over three rounds in which you first draft your skills, artifacts and weapons and then fight monsters in a dungeon. For each round you have a different pile of cards and you have to take out some cards from the decks uh, for the number of players, indicated by a number on the cards. Then each player gets six cards, picks one, plays that card immediately and passes the rest. And you keep going to uh, do that until only two cards are left in the pack, then you choose one of those and discard the other. That means at the end of uh, around each player has five cards. Each card has a gold cost and there can be a discount if your character has a specific skill which is shown um, with a symbol on your character board. That means some classes can play certain cards easier than others. Cards represent spells, weapons and armor. 
And if you do not have enough money to play a card, there is a second use for it. You can turn it around and put it under your board, which will give you a new skill in form of a new symbol, making other cards cheaper or better. For example, one card could give you a sword icon, which means you are now proficient with swords. And if you then want to equip a sword card, it could reference that skill and grant you bonus damage or make it cheaper to buy that item. Once everyone is done drafting for that round, you have to fight monsters using your weapons to deal damage and your armor to reduce incoming damage. The game has three elements which I think are interesting for us. The first one is multi-use cards. If you cannot afford to play a card, you still have the option to gain some advantage from it by using it as a skill. And what I really like about that implementation is that it is not only a random use of the card in which you would earn some money, for example. Um, it really is a meaningful decision that you make because um, it grants you a skill which then later has an influence on the cost of the card you are playing next and on the uh, skills you use with your character. You can draft cards early on, use them to learn a skill and thereby reduce the cost of future cards. That means these, these cards in the future go up in value for you. So they form your strategy. I really like that super simple implementation of character specialization. It means that everyone is still competing for those cards, but you get a bit of an advantage for some cards. That means they go up in value for you. Let's stick with the sword example for a moment here. So if you have acquired the skill um, of being proficient with swords, the next weapon that comes around that gives a bonus for a sword thimble immediately goes up in value for you. And if you have a chance uh, or the decision to make between the sword and a bow, for example, you will probably pick the sword. But that doesn't mean that you are the only player who wants to have that sword, only because you are the only one who is proficient with it. All the other players can also play the sword. If you compare this to other implementations like color for example or character classes um, this is in my eyes a better implementation um, for example let's say you have another implementation where a wizard is only allowed to use spells or let's let's take a let's take a warrior the warrior is the only one who can play swords and in some point uh, during the draft you decided that you will be the warrior for example you choose the color red during the draft um, then you will only look at the red warrior cards from now on and to some degree ignore all the other cards. So the decisions that you have to make are easier but also not as deep. So there are maybe cards in the pool that no one needs or that no one is fighting over. Uh, with this implementation here all the cards can be used by everyone and I really like that kind of implementation. One more thing that I want to mention here is the way how the game mitigate the daunting complexity for new players. The cards are divided into three level dungeon decks. Uh, the first equipment deck you draft only contains the basic weapons, the basic armor, basic spells and basic artifacts. And then the second and third level decks have upgraded versions of those cards and the more complex cards. By having these two or three different stages, two things are um, achieved. The first one is that it is 
easier for newer players to get into the game. They have some time to get familiar with the cards before they uh, need to read the more complex cards. And the second, maybe even more important thing is that it grants you the feeling of progression in the game. Um, as you will get access to the good stuff only in the later rounds of the game. So this gives you some kind of character progression which is um, essential for every role-playing hero game. The next game is a drafting area control game from Richard Garfield about commanding a bunny kingdom. Um, and that's also how the game is called, Bunny Kingdom. The game is played over four rounds and every player gets uh, 10 to 12 cards uh, depending on the player count and then chooses two cards per turn um, and passes the, their hand to the next one. And the um, pool is hidden and um, the cards represent different things in the game. The most important cards are territory cards. They reference um, coordinates um, for a slot on the board on which you are allowed to place a bunny when you have this card. Um, this is how you gain control of an area in this game. Then you have parchment cards that um, are played face down and act as an individual rule that only applies to um, this specific player who drafted that card and it impacts the endgame scoring. So um, it changes the rules for one player so he can uh, adapt his tactic. Then you also have uh, building cards and resource cards that are um, in the game to allow you to improve slots on the board. There are two things in Bunny Kingdom which I think are very interesting from a designer's perspective. The first one are the individual goals. And drafting your goals sounds incredibly fun to me. Um, and it doesn't really need to be um, complete game-changing what you draft there. So the goals do not have to change your entire tactic or so. It may be it's enough to get some extra points for special tasks here and there or get some rewards for um, specific cards that you were able to draft during the rounds. And this allows you to add a secret goal for each player which can increase the tension in the draft because you don't know who picked which goal, but maybe you can draw some conclusions from their other picks and moves during the game. Uh, this is something that I really, really like. Um, and the second part that I think is interesting from a designer's perspective is the two-player version, which I already mentioned in the first um, part of this podcast series. Um, when you play the game with two players, each player gets a second hand face down that acts like a deck. Every turn when you draft your um, hand, um, you also draw an extra card from the second hand, which is face down in front of you. This is the simplest hack that I've seen for making um, a traditional draft uh, to work with two players as well. Because you just add a little bit of randomness and hidden information that the other player does not know. So um, no one is able to really predict to 100% what tactic one player is going for. Other than that, I think the drafting aspect of the game is straightforward. It's interesting because it is combined with an area control game, but the drafting part of the game is pretty straightforward from my perspective. This will not be the last Richard Garfield game for today, but we, before we come to the next one, we talk about Dungeon Draft. Um, over the course of four rounds, two to five players will draft heroes and weapons in Dungeon Draft. And they will use them to defeat monsters and complete quests. Um, 
And they do that because they want to earn as much experience points as possible. Um, and in order to, to um, recruit the heroes and buy the weapons, um, the players need gold, which is used as a resource in the game. And after four rounds, the player who um, earned the most experience points wins the game. Each player starts the game with nine gold and three random quest cards. And um, then each player gets seven cards from which... Um, He or she chooses one and passes the rest to the next player. So typical drafting here again. Um, the components that are drafted are very interesting in this game because um, you do not only draft um, characters and weapons, you also draft um, monsters and you have to face the monsters then. But let's um, go through it step by step. You First you have the characters the characters cost some gold and each hero um, and also each weapon in the game has a class and classes are indicated by card color and also with an icon on the card so once everyone has uh, drafted seven cards the players um, come to the play phase in which they can um, take their turn and play their quest card and their draft cards um, and they can play the any number of cards um, during their turn um, provided they have their sufficient resources to do so to play the heroes and the weapons player must spend gold and then the heroes and weapons remain in front of them um, and provide them with um, some special abilities when they enter the battlefield and also an attack value And this attack value then is needed um, to defeat monsters, which is another card type that you draft during the drafting portion of the game. When they play a monster, they have to defeat it um, by having more attack on the board um, or equal to um, the monster's attack cost that is printed on the card. And then uh, the players gain gold and experience point for that. In addition to that, there are the quest cards um, from which each player gets five in the beginning. At the beginning of the game, they are not drafted. And from that five, um, each player chooses three and returns the other two. Um, and the quests, they do not cost gold to play, but they have another requirement. Uh, and this requirement typically is um, that you need to have the appropriate class icons on the board before you can um, play the quest. That means if a quest has the cost of uh, three blue and three purple uh, quest ic uh, character icons, um, then it may be played only um, if the player has at least three mages and three rogues. The quests then grant you some special abilities and uh, give you experience points, which are important for the endgame scoring, of course. So what I really like about the game are the quest cards. Um, which give the players some form of direction and guidance to develop a strategy. And um, I also like that some cards require other cards to be played. So these prerequisites um, give you some interesting choices during the draft because um, you always need to consider if it's worse to, to draft a card that you are not able to play at the moment and you have to adjust your picks afterwards um, or are you going for a card that you are able to play right now. The next game, again, is a Richard Garfield game and it's called Treasure Hunter. Um, the players are treasure hunters on a quest for legendary treasure. And in each of the five rounds of the game, the players go through the same four locations. Um, the Frosty Mountains, a jungle and a lava cave. And at the end, they have to fight goblins. Um, at the beginning of each of the five rounds, uh, the players gain a hand of nine cards from which they um, have to draft their adventurers, their action cards and some 
watchdogs which they need to fight the goblins. At each of the first three locations, um, the players are able to uh, capture treasures. The players with the strongest group of adventurers gains one of the treasures, um, and the player with the least strong group of adventurers fetches the other one. And after the three locations, uh, the players must defend themselves against goblins with the help of watchdogs, um, which is a special card type that they can uh, draft during um, during the drafting part of the game. And anybody who does not own enough or sufficient watchdogs um, loses some of uh, of the the treasure. After five rounds have been played, um, the player with the most treasure wins. And um, the game starts with 15 coins for each player and nine cards. And um, then the treasure that can be earned in each of the three realms is randomly picked from a pile and um, revealed so the players know what they can earn from each of the realms. Uh, then they have to pick one of the nine cards and pass the, the rest to the next player until everyone has nine cards. So for each realm, each player then has to play their colored adventurer cards. And it is determined who wins the treasure um, by calculating the lowest and the highest value of the cards. So how does it work with the adventurers? The adventurer cards are very, very simple. They just have a color that matches one of the realms. So blue adventurers for the ice realm, green adventurers for the jungle, and red adventurers for the lava realm. In addition to that, they also have a value between 1 and 12. And that's it. The player with the most points in a realm gets the treasure and the one with the least points get the other treasure. From a thematic point of view that sounds a little bit strange but uh, from a gameplay perspective it makes kind of sense because it is uh, easier to uh, be in the middle with some, at least some adventurers of that color than um, getting almost none of the, of the adventurers or at least one with a very low value. So... Um, then, in addition to the adventure, there are action cards which can be drafted, which, for example, multiply the point value um, for a specific round or um, make you immune to the goblin attack for this round or negate the value of another action card. And um, then we also have dock cards, um, which are needed to fight the goblins at the end, and coin cards, which give you a plain amount of, um, of gold um, for your treasure. What I like about the game is the combination of uh, the static adventurer cards and the interactive action cards. Um, I like the action cards because they add much to the game. The adventurers are really, really static. There's not, not much going on on the cards. And with the action cards, players have some form of a tactical element to, to react on each other and um, to react on the choices of the other players. That is um, very important for the game, I think. And what I do not like about the game is uh, the missing synergy between the cards. From my point of view, the game really lacks a little bit here because, um, well, yes, there are some cards that give you additional money for uh, for certain colored cards, but somehow it's tactically a bit too simplistic, at least for me. But when I talk about too simplistic, this could also be um, interpreted as a good thing because the um, age recommendation of the game is um, 8+. Plus. And for this uh, target group, this could be um, the, exactly the sweet spot of complexity. The next game is also a game from Richard Garfield. It seems that he is really into drafting games. Um, 
And the game is called Carnival of Monsters. Um, Carnival of Monsters is a card drafting game in which players try to collect sets of land cards, though they can capture exotic monsters to display them in a carnival. The game is played over four rounds, and at the beginning of each round, each player receives a hand of eight cards. Um, then they have to pick one card to, uh, to play or keep and pass the rest to the neighbor. And they repeat this until all of the cards have been taken. But before the draft begins, um, a season card is revealed. The season card shows one of uh, one typically shows one type of monster that the public is especially interested in. Um, for example, this card could say each player gains two coins for the first um, eerie monster they play, um, and that is a goal that everyone can achieve during the turn by capturing a certain type of monster. Um, in addition to that, the card has a goal uh, that can only be achieved by one player. Um, so at the end of the round, the player who has, for example, captured the most eerie monsters gains um, the season card as a trophy. This will be uh, worth additional victory points at the end of the game. And then the players, uh, once this card is revealed, um, the players uh, start to draft. Um, they pick a card and pass the rest um, of the hand To the, to the next player and then can immediately decide if they want to play that card or if they want to keep it for the future. If they want to play the card, um, this costs money. Um, players start with a few coins, um, which allows them to play cards, but there are also other ways of handling um, the cards. Typically, you play the card, um, you draft it immediately and pay its gold costs. And if you don't have enough gold, you... Um, have to take a loan that gives you money but also costs you some victory points at the end. And as an alternative, you can pay one gold to save that card for a later use. So let's look a little bit deeper into the different card types. So we have land cards um, and there are six different regions which are shown on the card. So you can consider them six different colors of lands and each card provides you with a number of land points for that reason so there are land cards that provide you with one point and other land cards that provide you with two or three points and these land points are then um, used to play monster cards so this sounds a little bit like magic the gathering and it plays a little bit like magic the gathering i would guess the synergy here comes from um really from the lands with the higher power values because they require you to already have a land of the same type before you are allowed to play them. So you have to build up the, um, the land cards in a specific color. So then each monster, we have monster cards and each monster also comes from um, one of the six different regions. So it has a color and it is worth a number of victory points at the end of a game. And in order to play a monster card, you must spend land points from um, the matching land cards. So, for example, to capture a triad, um, you would have to pay one power from an enchanted forest. So, it's a green creature card and you have to pay one green enchanted forest. And you can spend those mana only once per turn. So let's say you have four forest power cards and you want to capture that triad for one. You only have three more left for that turn. So um, let's say, for example, you open a very strong creature that you would like um, 
um, to, to have in your pool because it gives a ton of victory points. But you are not able to pay its cost, um, its mana cost at the moment because you do not have the matching lands. So then you have the chance to pay one gold to keep that card hidden um, for the future. From now on you would probably prioritize the respective lands much higher um, that you need for the to capture that creature. And some monsters are also dangerous ones. Um, and these monsters often grant you more victory points, but they also come with some danger icons. So it's more of a risk-reward situation. Um, and at the end of each turn, one player rolls um, three dice uh, to see how many of the dangerous symbols can be countered this round. Um, so if you captured two or three creatures um, and some of them have a danger symbol on them, let's say you have uh, three danger symbols in total and the dice only um, negates two of those symbols, then you would um, suffer, um, let's say, damage from the, from the monster, which is um, represented by uh, losing money in the game. And if you don't have money, you need to take a loan. In addition to uh, lands and creatures, some cards represent um, staff and people you can hire. They cost a certain amount of money and they give you a benefit. Most of them reward you for going into a specific strategy. Um, for example, giving you extra coins for every danger symbol on a creature that you have or extra coins for each forest creature that you captured and so on. Uh, there are also cards that just have an immediate effect, for example, giving you some coins. And there are secret goal cards um, that offer another way to earn victory points. These cards um, are never played, so they always are hidden. And, for example, they give you six victory points if you didn't take any creature of a certain color or of a certain type. And at the end of the game, all of these secret goals are revealed and players earn victory points if they fulfill the requirements. After um, four rounds, the victory points are calculated and the winner is determined. So what I really, really like about the game are the season cards. So this is more or less a mix of a public goal everyone can achieve and a goal that only one person can achieve. Um, and I really like that combination because... Uh, what this does to the drafting aspect of the game is that it adds a lot of variety. As a designer, you can get away with fewer cards in the drafting pool because with one card you can change the uh, the value of uh, maybe one third or half or I don't know how many cards in the pool with just one card. And if you have uh, 10 or 20 of those cards, you can um, change the value of uh, the entire pool several times. Well, this um, is an interesting aspect that you can use as a designer if you want to keep your um, card pool low. The second thing that we can learn from this game is um, the combination of land cards and monsters. The concept really reminds me of mana in Magic and I'm not yet sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I love the idea that you draft the resource and the reward together from one pool. However, in Magic, it is kind of a problem when you draw too few mana at the beginning of the game or too much mana at the end of the game. And the same could happen here. Uh, land cards are super, super important in the beginning and are more or less useless at the end of the game. And that is typically something you really want to prevent in a game. Magic has implemented a lot of 
variants to mitigate that problem by taking mulligans, uh, using mechanics to allow you to look at the top of your deck and even search your library for land cards. I haven't played Carnival of Monsters yet, but I'm really looking forward to try it at uh, Spiel in Essen to see how um, all of this works out. A possible way to mitigate that problem could be, for example, to have separate piles of cards for each phase and simply put more of the land cards in the earlier season and less of them in the later season. But maybe I'm completely wrong and the self-correcting um, aspect of drafting um, helps to mitigate that problem by itself. Now, after I've talked uh, so much about all of the drafting games from Richard Garfield and all the other games, I've finally come to Magic the Gathering. The game that started it all and that is, for me, still the best drafting game out there. Um, even so, it never was designed specifically for, for being a drafting game. Um, for me, however, drafting is also the most important reason why I consider Magic the best game of all times. Um, without the drafting mechanic, I would probably have lost interest in the game a long time ago. Um, in a Magic draft, each player gets three booster packs of 15 random cards and each player opens one pack, picks a card and then passes the remaining cards to the neighbor. What makes a Magic draft so much fun, especially compared to um, playing with uh, construct decks, is the unknown pool which uh, generates completely new situations uh, each time you play. A new situation to which you have to adapt with your strategy. Um, and the main reason is that the cards you will see are dependent on what has been opened in the packs. Um, so this is the random element that is in the draft. And it is dependent on what your neighbors have picked as well. You only have access to a very limited subset of all available cards of that set. And I love that aspect of drafting in all the games um, that we talked about. Uh, for me, this is way more exciting than building a deck from the entirety of a set and play that deck over and over again. And um, I love adapting to new situations on the fly. The next reason why Magic Draft is so much fun is because the cards have very clear synergistic relationships with uh, one another and that has a huge impact on the power evaluation of each card. The easiest form of synergy, which most people would probably call uh, dependency and not a synergy, is the color identity of a card. And most of the cards belong to one or more of the uh, five different colors in the game. And you can only play a card if you have the resource of that color, the mana. And that means you typically end up playing only two um, or maybe three of the five colors um, to increase your deck's consistency and finding the corresponding resource and spells. Um, for drafting aspect, this is great for two reasons. First, you get some uh, form of guidance for the draft. Uh, once you have decided which colors you want to play, which often happens after a few picks, uh, the following card choices become easier. This is great help for um, newer players. Um, from there on, they only have to evaluate the cards of their color and maybe consider other colors for hate drafting purposes or splashing, but that is not required at all. The barrier of uh, entry in Magic is still very, very high, and so it helps that you can tell uh, newer players that they should focus on, on two colors and then uh, pick only cards from that color from there on. The second reason why the color identity is important is because you can 
guess what other players are picking based on the cards that go around the table and by the number of cards per color in each pack. Let's say you get a pack of which four cards are already missing, uh, but there is no green card left in that booster pack. This is a strong indicator that some of your neighbors passing to you are playing green. However, it is only a data point and no certainty. It could have been that the random pack only contained one green card at all. Um, and this is where the mind games begin in the draft. If you consider all of these information as uh, small and little data points, you will get a good idea of what the people next to you are trying to do. But there is much more synergy in magic than the colors. For many cards, their power is dependent on other cards um, or strategies that you are going for. That means you cannot evaluate them in a vacuum. You must always evaluate it with regards to your previous picks and your idea of how likely you'll get the other pieces to make this card better. As a result, you get a risk-reward situation that can be very satisfying to players. If you are looking for a specific card, the tension increases towards the end of the game and it creates a lot of satisfaction if you finally find that card. Of course, it is a risk and if you don't find the card, it can also be frustrating. The synergies in Magic really alter the value of the remaining cards. A player who picks a card of a certain color or strategy is going to more highly value complementary cards of that color and strategy uh, for their next picks. This effect increases during the draft and creates a snowballing effect where as more picks are made, uh, values alter significantly um, on cards remaining in the pool for each player. I know that most of these things are true for the other drafting games as well and Richard Garfield also transported color identity and synergy into all of his other drafting games. But none of them come even close to the experience I get from a magic draft. And I thought about why that is the case uh, and I'm not entirely sure, but I think it comes from the complexity of the game. And by complexity, I mean two things. First, the set size is rather large with around about 270 different cards from which the drafting pool is randomly constructed. And secondly, the game you play after the drafting is also quite heavy. This Strategic depth is something I enjoy very much because it gives you as a player a lot of strategic elements to think about to become and it gives you the chance to become better than your opponents with your strategic decisions. They really matter. This triggers my competitive personality quite a bit. Until now, we have only looked at the regular booster draft in Magic, but over the years, a lot of different drafting possibilities and variants have evolved um, from the Magic community, and I briefly want to talk about them here. Mm. The first one is Rochester Draft. A Rochester Draft is similar to a normal booster draft, but the difference is that the booster packs are not opened simultaneously in a hidden mode, but one after another in a revealed mode. Um, a pack of 15 cards is laid out on the table face up um, and then the first player takes a card from that booster, um, then the second player takes a card until the last player, typically the eighth person, um, has taken their card. And then the last person takes another card and you continue in reverse order until all of the cards have been taken. Uh, then the next pack is opened until every player has 45 cards. Um, Rochester Draft is deemed to be more skill intensive than a regular draft. This is because all of the information are available for everyone. 
That means you have to process a lot more information and adapt your strategy based on those information. Instead of uh, just having an unclear picture of what the other players could, could be doing. Uh, also, hate drafting becomes more important and um, the interesting part is that the hate drafts are now also revealed. That means other players know when you hate drafted from them. Um, and this adds another element to the game and this element is revenge. It can even happen that two players focus on hate drafting from one another, which typically ends up in a situation in which both players have very, very bad decks uh, compared to the other players who spend their picks on improving their own deck. The next variant I want to talk about is Rotisserie Draft. This is also um, a variant which is very similar to um, Rochester Draft, the one we just talked about. The only difference is that instead of opening the packs one after another, the entire pool is opened at once. This is often used to draft from a cube, which um, is a pre-constructed pool of cards um, to draft from. The pool size for a cube um, varies, but it is typically not below 360 cards. So imagine that you uh, lay out all these 360 cards on the table um, and thereby remove all of the random element from the game. Um, this allows the players to really construct very, very strong decks. Um, and therefore you typically don't need... Um, 45 cards per player but maybe something like 30 cards um, to form a very strong deck because you only pick cards you really need and don't have to um, pick useless cards at the end of a pack but you definitely cannot play a rotisserie draft with newer players because there's just too much information to process and you really need to know um, each card in the entire set the next variant is called a winston draft it is a variant to draft magic with two players um, and for that, players take a pre-constructed pool of, um, let's say, around about 100 cards and place um, them face down in front of them in the middle of the table. Um, then three cards are drawn, separated into three piles and placed next to the deck. The starting player then looks at the first pile nearest to the deck and decides whether to take the pile or to add another card to it from the deck. If the player decides to add a card to the pile, they check the next pile and make the same decision. Do I take that card or do I add another card on top of it? On the third pile, their choice is a bit different because um, when they decide not to take the last pile, they uh, just get a random card from the top of the pool. And once a player has taken a pile, um, it's the other player's turn until all of the cards are taken. So over time, the piles become larger and larger and you have to make decisions if you want to take a, a pile with five cards, even if they are bad, or if you want to take um, the next pile where we want to look at the next pile where only two or three cards are um, beneath that pile. And you also have to remember which cards um, remained on the table on which pile. So it's a lot of, um, lot of remembering in that part. Um, I really like the decision that you have to make here because it adds a push-your-luck element to drafting and that is a very interesting alternative um, way to play Magic. You also get some more information about the opponent's choices compared to a regular draft because you see what they left behind on the table and you can then use this information to adapt your strategy. And you can also try to hook them and force them into a specific color or archetype by leaving a very good card on the table 
Um, and sometimes this information to know what your opponent, opponent will go for can even be more important than um, picking the card for yourself. The last variant I want to cover is uh, called Effect or Fiction Draft. I think I already mentioned it in the first part of this series. Um, Fact of Fiction is another way to draft with two players. And its name comes from a magic card that has a similar effect. Um, the idea is to divide a pile of cards into two playable decks. Therefore, you put a pool of 90 cards face down on the table. And the first player takes um, five cards from the top and separates them into two piles. The piles don't have to be distributed evenly. They can vary from one card in one pile and four cards in the other pile to uh, three cards in one pile and two cards in the other pile. Um, the other player then selects one pile, takes it for himself, and then the other pile goes to the other player. Um, and then the same process is repeated, um, starting by the other player who takes the next five cards and makes another two piles, and so on, until all of the cards are distributed. The skill required for this form of drafting is completely different as it is um, for the normal uh, draft because um, it is more about constructing piles and evaluating all of the cards instead of evaluating only the cards that are relevant for you. This is an interesting alternative um, approach, but I still prefer the regular draft model. Maybe because there are more hidden information and I'm really a big fan of hidden information. I think there are even more variants, but um, those should be enough to show you how versatile drafting in Magic is and maybe um, you got even some ideas on how to use those variants for your own game design. Uh, I find it very interesting that Magic wasn't made as a drafting game, yet the community came up with so many great ideas to um, turn that game into a drafting game. But there is one more thing that I want to talk about when it comes to Magic and that is conspiracy um, conspiracy is a set that was primarily created to be drafted um, and the designers really pushed the drafting aspect by printing cards that directly interfere with the drafting rules um, and i categorized those drafting meta cards into six different categories and i want to give you some examples because i think this is a very nice twist um, that you could add to a drafting game and i have not seen that uh, too much in other drafting games uh, which surprises me by the way so the first one is a uh, neighbor matters cards for example there is a card called paliano the high city which is a land card and one when you draft it uh, your neighbor to the left and your neighbor to the right both choose a different color and you also choose a color and then the land is able to pro, uh, produce uh, those uh, named colors. You have to write uh, the decisions down and so the other players have an interesting choice they have to make during the draft. They probably will try to guess a color that uh, you are not playing so that you do not get too much benefit from the land. Or they may also take into account which colors they are playing to push you into another direction. That is a very interesting uh, twist, I would say. Another card from that category is a Cockwork Tracker. Um, and when you draft it, um, you have to note the player who passed that card to you. And then, during the game, this creature has always to attack the player that you have noted. To understand that, you have to um, know that you, in Conspiracy, play um, a big multiplayer round uh, after the draft and it really doesn't matter who you who you attack there 
The next uh, category are cards that become stronger the longer the draft goes. For example, there is a card called Garbage Fire. And once you draft that card, you have to reveal it and uh, then note how many cards you have drafted this round, including Garbage Fire. This impacts the effect of the card because the card says it deals uh, that much damage to... Um, target creature that means if you pick that card as the fifth card in that round um, it will deal five damage uh, during the match another card from that category is piratic hunter it is a creature card and it uh, functions in the same way so if you pick it picked it as a four, fourth card you know the number four when you draft it and you have to reveal it by the way and when the card enters the battlefield its power and toughness is equal to the number that you have noted for that card The next category is about combining cards during the draft. Um, so a example would be um, the card Smuggler Captain, which you have to um, draft face up. Um, and then as you draft another card, you may reveal it, the other card, and note its name. Um, and then you also turn the Smuggler Captain face down um, and... Then later in the game, so what you do is you pretty much link the Smuggler Captain and um, another card. And then when you play the Smuggler Captain during the game, you are allowed to search your library and um, put that other card into your hand. Another example of that category is the card Noble Banneret, um, which you also have to link together with um, another creature card in that, that scenario. And um, if you have uh, the Noble Banneret and the other creature on the board, um, both become stronger. They get plus one, plus one, and um, an additional ability, in that case, lifelink. The next category is maybe the most interesting one because it um, is a category about impacting the number of picks you have or um, impacting the choices you have. And I have a few examples for that. So the first one would be a card called Cockwork Librarian. Um, and this card allows you, you draft this card and you draft it also face up so the others see what you do. Um, and once during the draft, you may um, add an additional card from the booster pack. So you are allowed to draft two cards from a pack instead of one. And if you do so, you have to put the Cockwork Librarian back into the pack. Another example would be the Arc Demon of Paliano. And this card is also... Um, drafted face up and it's a very strong card um, so um, the effect is uh, not an advantage it is a disadvantage because the card is so strong and um, the disadvantage is that you um, can't look at the booster packs once you drafted the arc demon um, and you must draft cards at random from the next from the next um, three picks so The card is so strong that you uh, are not allowed to make uh, choices during the next three picks. Really love it. Um, then we have a card called Lore Seeker. Um, you also draft it face up or you reveal it when you draft it. Um, and um, now after you drafted the Lore Seeker, you may add a completely new booster pack to the draft. Uh, so this is really weird because uh, then people will have more cards than uh, expected and so on. But uh, I think it was a very nice uh, decision from uh, some salespeople over at Wizards to add this to the to the draft because people uh, need to uh, add another closed uh, product from them to the draft. But I love it and, and other people love it as well. 
Uh, another card of that category is a card called Kennel Dredger, and um, it changes the drafting portion in that matter that you get all the last cards from that booster pack. So um, when you when you draft that card, you uh, draft it face up, and all the last cards from that pack go to you instead of the other players. And the last card I want to talk about of that category is the Agent of Acquisitions. And instead of drafting a card from a booster pack, you may uh, draft the entire pack. So, And if you do so, um, you um, are no longer uh, participating in that draft round. So you can take the entire pack, but you do not make any picks afterwards. The next category I want to talk about is um, about gaining additional information which are typically hidden during the draft. In that category are cards like Illusionary Informant or Cockworks Buy, which allow you to um, look at picks from other players. So you get some little bit of information what kind of cards they picked from the pack. Um, or there's a card called Whisper Gear Sneak, which allows you to look at an entirely unopened booster pack. And the last category is a category about removing cards from the pool. There are two cards in this category. Uh, one is the Animus of Predation, uh, which you also have to draft face up. And um, as you draft a card, you may remove it from the game face up. So once you drafted the Animus, afterwards you have always the possibility to, to remove the card that you drafted um, from the game. So you re reduce the choices you have later to construct your deck. Um, but you get a little bit of bonus for that um, because the Animus gains the abilities of the card you just removed. For example, it gains Flying or it gains Tremble or uh, Hexproof Menace. So he gains some kind of keywords which makes the, uh, the creature card better. And the other card of this category is a Cockwork Grinder, which functions in the same way that you are allowed to remove cards from the, um, from the game. So reducing your um, overall pool, your individual pool. And then the Cockwork Grinder enters the battlefield during the game with that many plus one plus one counters on it. So it gets stronger. For each card that you have removed from the game, um, the Cockwork Grinder becomes stronger. So it's more or less an all or nothing strategy, I would say. And that's it for Magic the Gathering. And this also concludes the drafting board games I wanted to talk about. But... That's not the end, because there are at least two digital games I at least need to mention here before we can finally come to a conclusion. Um, and I know I probably sound like a Richard Garfield fanboy, but the game I wanted to talk about here is Artifact, which is also a Richard Garfield design. Um, and it is a game, um, uh, digital game variant of the MOBA genre. Um, I mentioned it here on the podcast before. You are drafting cards there in the beginning or at least it's a drafting mode um, and the cards represent heroes spells and items and they are completely hidden um, you do have no information about your opponent's choices and um, the pool size is 12 cards per player um, and per round so that makes uh, 60 uh, cards in total per player so because you draft five rounds um, and you make two picks per turn um, and there are, this is interesting because there are restrictions of picks and we do not have seen many games which have these kind of restrictions um, during the, the, the drafting portion of the game. Um, because in any given pack you can only select one hero card. Um, you can't just grab two amazing ones for example. 
And if you um, if you grab a hero early and see a very, very good one late, you cannot pick it. So it is a decision that you have to make um, when you want to um, to pick that hero, the only one that you are allowed per pack. But it's, again, it's a risk-reward situation. And if no hero is chosen before the end of the pack, the player will be offered a random generic hero. The other game element that um, affects the picks during a draft is the color identity. Again, Richard Garfield put it into the game. I think Artifact is a great game, but it has one problem, and that problem is the color identity. Because you can only play spells that match the color of your heroes, and it, the hero needs to be alive. And uh, this causes several problems. First of all, during the draft, you ignore a lot of the cards because they are not relevant to you. Um, this is similar to magic, but it feels easier to play a card uh, of a different color in magic by adding one or two mana of that color to splash that card in your deck. In artifact, that is a bit harder because you need to pick a hero of that uh, that color um, and then you have to have that hero alive and you're only allowed to use this uh, spells in the lane of that hero. Um, so this, it's a lot of more conditional, so it's not too easy to splash a color. And it's really not a good feeling during the game if you uh, have a spell in your hand but you cannot play it because the corresponding hero um, of the same color is no longer on the battlefield. Unfortunately, it happens too often in the game that you cannot perform any action at all um, because the heroes uh, unexpectedly die and the color identity does not does not fit, so you cannot cast any spell. Um, this doesn't really feel good. Altogether, I have to say that the color identity in Artifact for me is too restrictive. If we consider the heroes uh, a resource because they allow you to play spells of that certain color and the spells, the reward, we also have uh, uh, what we also had in other games that you draft the resource and the reward in the same packs. Uh, and I like that in general. However, it feels a little bit odd in Artifact because it's... Uh, very very disappointing if you see a hero of your color a strong hero of your color um, at the end of a pack and you already picked your hero and are not longer allowed to pick another hero in that pack what i learned from that for myself is that restricting the choices the picks that you're allowed to make during the draft can lead to uh, disappointment and this is something that you really don't want during the draft one thing about the draft that I like is the card Golden Ticket. And this card is more or less a placeholder for a random item. You pick that card and during the game uh, you get a, um, a random item. This is a, a, a nice little twist to add a push-your-luck element to the draft, um, which is simple and it's easy to implement in a digital game it's a bit more complex in a physical game but still possible and um, yeah I, li I like that a lot the last game for today is not a game it's a genre of games uh, in which hate picking and counter picking plays an important role in fact it is almost the entire reason for the draft uh, the genre i talk about um, are moba games especially league of legends and dota in mobile games, two teams of players are paired against each other and each player is controlling a single hero chosen from a large pool of heroes with a unique set of properties. 
there are more than 100 individual heroes, uh, resulting in an infinite number of potential team combinations. And during the draft, the teams first bun some heroes, which are then removed from the drafting pool, and they cannot be picked by the other team and by the own team. Then the teams choose their heroes in alternate order. What makes this drafting method interesting is the fact that MOBA drafts also bring the considerations of skill to the drafting table. So since the pool is very deep, a player may be more or less comfortable um, or familiar with a given hero. If two well-known teams play against each other, it is typically known which heroes are preferred by the players and the bunning is uh, a way to ensure players don't settle with an optimized team composition. This also helps to balance the team composition in general because um, some combos may be stronger than others and um, typically uh, the tier 1 combos uh, will be bunned or one of the combo pieces will be counterpicked in order to deny the other team from assembling this uh, very strong combination of uh, heroes. Banning is also uh, important to remove heroes and compositions that are particularly strong against your intended team composition. For me, the entire aspect of counterpicking and banning is super interesting and I would love to see this um, in tabletop games as well. Pooh, that were a lot of drafting games I analyzed and played and talked about during the last three weeks. Time to come to a final conclusion. The most important question that I've asked myself is what makes a drafting game fun? And I came up with five points which I think are most important to make uh, a drafting game fun. The first one is a draft needs as many interesting choices as possible. You can tell that a drafting game is good when you look at your choices and want multiple of those cards. That also implies that there are no cards in the pack that are completely useless. For example, um, land at the end of the game in Carnival of Monsters. Um, the second point is a draft should support different tactics. And the value of the cards should be different for each player. And the value should depend on the chosen strategy. For example, cards that give you a fixed amount of victory points or gold are not as interesting as cards that give you victory points or gold um, depending on other cards you already drafted. For example, let's say one gold for each green creature in your pool. And in order to do so, you need cards that help players to identify a certain strategy and to evaluate if that strategy is open or already occupied by another player. And Magic does this in a great way in some of their sets. Let's say their set is about two-color combinations, and each of the ten two-color combinations has its own tactic. Then they put one strong multicolor card into the uncommon slot of the set, and give those cards an ability that strongly relates to the strategy of the color combo. Um, if you see a card like that as fourth or fifth pick, you know that this strategy is open and that you can go for it. The easiest example here would be um, the color combination white and blue. And in some sets, this color combination is about flying creatures. What they would do then is put a multicolored white-blue flying creature that is very pushed in its power into the uncommon slot of the set um, and give it an ability like... Uh, all other creatures gain, uh, flying creatures gain plus one power. 
or whenever you play a flying creature something happens. So this means if you see this card you know which two colors you should prefer. It also tells you that you should prefer creatures with flying and if you see that card late in the in the drafting pool you can identify that the, both of those colors or this color combination at least is open. The advice for designers here would be to design your cards with different strategies in mind and make sure that there are some cards that stand out in explaining that strategy and pushing players into that strategy. A good example um, I also talked about today are the quest cards um, that give players some form of direction and guidance to develop their strategy. The third aspect I want to see in a draft game is some form of progression. That can be an engine that you try to build, that can be improving your soldiers over time, that can be building up a resource that you need to pick stronger cards later in the draft. Uh, some form of building block that becomes stronger and stronger the longer the draft goes. And the fourth aspect I want to see in drafting games are card interactions and combos. And the core of many of the drafting games we talked about um, in this series uh, is about set collection and identifying cards that work well together and are stronger in combination than each of them individually. This can be very easy and obvious combos like uh, three nigiri in Sushi Go or more complex ones um, in some of the other examples we talked about. Let's take Creed for an example in which every single card has a unique ability um, and an very easy way to reference each other. For example, via card types, colors or icons. A good card layout can really help here to identify these combos and interactions. In some games, the combo pieces are even written on the card directly and named specifically. And how obvious you want that combos to be really depends on uh, your target group, especially um, the age you want your game to be for. The last point that I require from a good drafting game is flexibility. Um, and this can be achieved by multi-purpose cards, as it is done in Dungeon Draft, for example. Or it can also be achieved by ways to discard cards for some benefit, as it is done in Seven um, Wonders. If there are different options of what you can do with the card, this can increase the hate drafting on one side and on the other side, um, it also reduces the problem that each card needs to be valuable for each player. So, as I have hopefully demonstrated today, drafting is a fascinating mechanic and it's capable of creating a huge amount of tension and engagement um, and it requires a lot of strategical thinking, long-term thinking and the ability to change your strategy on the fly. I hope there will be released much more drafting games in the future because I'm more than willing to produce another three episodes about that topic. But until then, I hope you um, have a good understanding now of the genre and the possibilities um, of using drafting as a mechanic, maybe for your own game designs. Thanks a lot for listening to the entire show. I know it was a long one. Um, please let me know what you think about the show um, in the comments on the website uh, at nerdlikeaboss.com or on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Links can be found in the show notes. Um, I also consider making a little design guide for drafting games. If you want to get an update on that, please join the NerdLab community mailing list um, to stay up to date. The link will also be in the show notes. Thanks a lot for listening and until next week. Keep drafting and nerd like a boss.